We come, uh, we're working our way through the Gospel of Luke. We've gone through chapter 1 and chapter 2. We now arrive at, at chapter 3. If you remember back in the end of chapter 1, John, the, uh, the forerunner's dad, Zechariah, prophesied about him that he would be called the prophet of the Most High. And he would go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of his salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. That was the prophecy of John's father. This morning we look at John's prophetic ministry of preparing the way for Jesus uh, to come into this world and to perform his ministry and fulfill his mission. And John does that with a profound call to repentance. John chapter 1, verse 1, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother uh, Philip, tetrarch of the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Let's pray. Father, we look to you and to your spirit for understanding and application of these words, your words, to us. Lord, grant that understanding, grant that application, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is John's pre-Christian preaching. There is no Christianity yet because there aren't any Christians yet because Christ has yet to earn one follower. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets, and this is Old Testament prophecy, if you will, coming from the mouth of John. But in this pre-Christian preaching of John, we're pointed to three truths about the coming Christianity, this Christianity that he was announcing that came in Jesus. And the first of them certainly aren't unimportant, Uh, but for this morning we'll give them rather short shrift, not because they don't deserve more, but just simply because of the space they occupy in this text. The first thing to be said about Christianity from all of this is that it's historical. Look at the first verse and a half of of the passage. Christianity is rooted and grounded and anchored in specific events, in specific individuals, in specific times and places. Francis Schaeffer used to speak of and wrote about Christianity taking place in space and time. These men, each one of them, is a historical character, a verifiably historical character. All of them can be verified as having lived at a specific time. This specific time that John's, uh, that Luke is, is writing about. In a specific place. They're tying your and my faith to historic reality. Historical, I should say. Reality. Why is that important? Christianity is real. It's real. It's not a mere religious symbol. It's not some sort of spiritual fantasy. It's not a myth, nor is it based on myths. It involves real people, the real God, real events, real times, real places. It's rooted and grounded in reality. It's historical. The second thing we note about uh, Christianity is that it's biblical. Look at the, the rest of verse 2 to verse 6. It's, it's rooted and grounded in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. It fulfills those Old Testament promises in the person of Jesus Christ. 
whose ministry is introduced here by the prophetic preaching of John, to whom we read the word of God came, which is Old Testament language. It's precisely the way the Old Testament describes the prophets. God speaking through them. God came to Isaiah. God came to whoever. And they brought the word of God to the people. Seven hundred years after Isaiah wrote these words that are quoted here. Now they're being fulfilled in John the Baptist and the Christ whom he's announcing. Every page of the Bible is about Christ and about Christianity. Remember at the end of this Gospel of Luke, Jesus is walking with those disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he opens scripture to them and it's teaching about him. It's all about Jesus. All about faith in him. That's not unimportant either. But again, we'll pass by it and get to the meat of John's message. Which is his third thing about Christianity. Christianity's radical. You you see it in in John's radical demands from here to the end of this passage, verse 7 to verse 20. It demands, first of all, a radical turning, verses 7 to 9. John came preaching a baptism of repentance. Now, understand that baptism isn't something new here. Jews had been, before they'd go into the temple, they would go through this ceremonial rite of, of washing and then enter into the temple uh, to, to worship. But this is different. John's not speaking at the temple. They're not going into the temple to worship. They're out in the wilderness. John is preaching the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40. It's a one-time act, this baptism that they go through, as a sign of repentance, a baptism of repentance. It's a sign of a radical turning. Radical. Here's what Webster says about radical. It has to do with a change or action relating to or affecting the fundamental nature of something, and that's important. It has to do with the root, you know, the radical sign in math. Talk about the square root and the radical sign. It's, it's going to the root of things. This repentance is something from down deep that, that John is preaching. It's a change or a turning in attitude from the things of the world, of the world toward God. And it goes deep. And it's, it's, it's turning to God in Christ with this deep-rooted change. It goes to the root of our being and of our nature and of our souls. It's profound rather than superficial change. 
And note, just in passing, that this turning to implies a turning from. Just as turning from implies a turning to. It demands this radical turning from everything that's not God to God in Christ. Also demands a, a whole new ethic, a new morality, verses 10 to 14, 19, and 20. Herod in verses 19 and 20 is the poster child for moral failure. Now, this isn't the Herod that was ruling when Jesus was born in, in chapter uh, 1 and 2. This is his son. He's dead, remember. And this is his son, who is much lesser uh, man uh, than, than Herod. But they were all rather foul uh, uh, people. He had married his niece. But he hadn't simply married his niece. His niece was the daughter of one brother who married his other brother. And he convinced her to divorce that to marry him. It was a messed up family, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, and, and there are other vile things uh, uh, about Herod. Well, he had done that. And John spoke out against it. John called him to account. And John paid the prophet's price. It cost him big. He lost his head. You know that story. But then, in John Scott's words, to follow Jesus is always to accept at least a measure of uncertainty, danger, and rejection for his sake. And you and I need to mark that and remember that. But that's no reason not to follow Jesus, is it? Earlier than this, in the same sermon, but before we get to Herod, he's caused three groups of folks uh, to exhibit this new set of, of ethics and, and moral morality. The crowds of ordinary Jews were to share their clothes and food with people who had less than they. Didn't matter how much, how, how much or how little they had, folks that had less than them, they would share with. Tax collectors, who were the scum of Jewish society, were Jews who contracted with the Roman government to collect taxes. And their living was that section between what they bid to get the job and what they were able to collect. And uh, had they stuck to the taxes, then okay, but they, they bumped things up and, and they were notoriously corrupt and looked down upon as not only being crooks, but as having sold out to the Romans. And, um, but they said, what should we do? And in, in, in light of the coming Messiah, Jesus says, don't collect any more than you're supposed to. 
collect no more than you're authorized to collect. And then there were soldiers who said, what must we do? And these weren't Roman soldiers at the time. There weren't any Roman troops there. These are Jewish soldiers working under the chief priest and all that. But in that same light, the light of the coming of the Messiah, these men who augmented their pay by certain corrupted deeds and extortions, they were to be content with their pay. And those latter two, the tax collectors and the soldiers, notice this. They weren't called to leave their profession. They were called to keep on doing what they were doing, but to do it right, to do it ethically, to do it morally. called for one thing, but to do something else. To get the yin and the yang of, of, of Christian ethics, of Christian morality, you and I would be quick to see sexual sin as sin. We'd probably be almost as quick, almost as quick to see taking more money from somebody else than we were supposed to in particular transaction, we, we, we might see that in taking money for ourselves that really belonged to, to others. Are you as quick to see the sin in not sharing what we have with others? Would you even call that sin? John does Do you see not sharing what we have with others as being sin to be repented of, to be turned from, to a whole new way of looking at things and, and doing life? It's often said that we should examine ourselves by the book. That's not the book. Ah, yeah, it's book. You don't always be doing that. It's this book. This book usually they're talking about. You ever do that? If on the return of Jesus Christ you stood before him and he said, Show me your checkbook, would you be embarrassed? When he went through it, looked at all those checks you had written over the years and years. how radical believing and living for Jesus is. And in the answer, a radical humility. Those people in verses 1 and the first part of verse 2, Tiberius, Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Judea, Herod, and, and Philip, and Isaias, uh, were pretty important men at the time. Uh, they were, you might even say, minor great men of time. One was the emperor of the Roman Empire. That's pretty good. How many of them 
I just mentioned their name. Can you identify them? Do you know much about them? And yet here comes John, and he surpasses them all. This man that lives out in the wilderness, dressed in, in, in animal skins, and eats off, you know, lives off of fruits and berries or whatever. He's greater than all. I say John the Baptist, you know who I'm talking about. He was a great prophet. He was the last of the prophets, uh, of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, Jesus said he was the greatest of them. Yet John, in his prophecy, acknowledged that he fell short of the Messiah. He who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And then later on in his ministry, he speaks of Jesus that he must increase, I must decrease. Back to the sandals and the feet. Jesus was a peripatetic, I think that's the Greek word, teacher. That is, he taught walking around. There was a group of Greek philosophers earlier uh, that just walked around and their students followed them and they talked and the students took notes or whatever. And, uh, and the students didn't pay their teachers for their education. They just followed them guarded all the wisdom and learning they could. But then they served them. They paid, if you will, in kind. They served them. They did menial tasks for them. They did the stuff that teachers would visit teaching, so they would do run errands and clean house and do all these things, cook, get food, whatever. And you see that as you read through the gospel accounts, these disciples doing work for Jesus. But there was something they wouldn't do. It was beneath them. They weren't expected to do it. To touch the teacher's sandals. To loosen them. To take them off. That was slaves' work. And it wasn't even Jewish slaves' work. They weren't allowed to do it. It was for Gentile slaves. Non-Jewish slaves. It was the lowest of the low that did that. But John didn't say, that's beneath me. Touching the Messiah's sandal is above me. I aspire to that, if you will. It's above me. And then Jesus comes, and he's in his ministry. His his ministry is about to to close out. It's the last one. And he's sitting there with his disciples. And do you remember what he did? How he washed. He took a towel. took off his outer garment. took a towel. And he took off their sandals. And he washed their feet. And then he asked them, Do you understand what I have done to you? In other words, do you get it? What just happened? What I just did? Do you get it? What Jesus did? The enormity of it? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, Jesus said. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, 
have washed your feet. You need to respond. And here's your response. You also wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And it goes far, far more than a literal washing of feet, doesn't it? Jesus' example is for everyone who claims to follow him. What will you do with it? What will you do with that? And then John goes on. He tells him more about the mighty one who was and most important still is, I remind you, coming. First, he wouldn't baptize with water. But he would baptize. He would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. A lot we get to say about that. That we don't have time to. But I'll say this. You and I experience Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit baptism if we're in Christ. That's what enables us to repent and to believe and to trust in Christ. That working of the Holy Spirit, that coming upon us of the Holy Spirit, that's the baptism of the Spirit. Water baptism is not unimportant. It's important. But it's ritual. Which is not to say ritual. It's not mere ritual. Ritual is not a bad word. It's a good thing. There are rituals we must do. Baptism is important. Water baptism. What we do is important. But the baptism of the Spirit is absolutely essential. There are people in heaven who haven't been baptized with water. There won't be anybody there who hasn't been baptized by the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit hasn't enabled to come to Christ, to turn from the world and all everything the world offers and everything it calls us to, to come to Jesus the Savior, to admit who we are and what we are and how badly we need Him and how hopeless and helpless we are apart from Him. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the baptism that Jesus brought. It is imperative, it's essential, it's indispensable. That's the first thing he said. The second thing John said, he'll come to separate the wheat from the chaff. He's looking for good fruit from you. Everyone who names the name of Jesus. There'll be a shaking of the tree. And some trees will be burnt up along with the chaff. Jesus is coming, was John's message. It's still the message. Jesus has come, and he's gone. And he's coming again.
And this message of repentance is to be preached until he comes. It's still true. He's coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? The point of all this is that the gospel calls you to do more than merely accept facts about Jesus. It's calling you to a radical redirection of the entirety of your life. First of all, to redirect your trust from yourself, from money, from position, from power, from personal goodness, from family, from whatever your trust is in to Jesus Christ. Come from heaven, crucified for your sin and your salvation. And second, as a result of that trust, don't confuse it, as a result of that trust, to redirect everything else from worldly conformity to a renewed mindset that seeks to know and do the will of God. That is to please God in everything, every day. Francis Havergal got it right in the, the opening words of her best-known Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. That's the long and short of the gospel call. Do you get it? Do you get it? Let's pray. Lord, may we get it. By your grace and goodness, by your mercy. Lord, retune our minds and hearts and wills. Grant us grace, O oh Lord, to understand what Luther knew so well, that the entirety of life is repenting, turning, away from all of those things that entice us, that lure us, that tempt us, to Jesus and the cross and the shed blood, to the tomb now empty, to the resurrected Savior who is coming in power and glory and judgment and with a warm, warm welcome to those that are his.
Lord, write it large this morning on our hearts, our minds, our wills, our souls. For Jesus' sake, amen.